Turn in your Bible to John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. John chapter 4, it is in the New Testament. It is one of the four Gospels. It's written by the Apostle John, and it is his kind of firsthand account. He was one of the 12 that spent... um, spent three intense years with Jesus, and he wrote down, um, he wrote down the story of, of, well, not the whole story. In fact, the last verse of the book of John says, if I would write down everything that I've seen over the past few years, there's not enough pages and books in the world to contain all of it. So there's a reason why some things landed in the Bible and some things just stayed in history between those people that were there. And so everything that we see in John, everything that we see in the Bible is there because God has something. Every single verse, every single word, every single sentence is essential and important, and God thought it should make the final cut of what's in the Bible. So we're going to dive into that this morning. Again, those of you, you that were with us last week, Pastor Stewart did a great job starting off our series on worship. He talked about RSVP worship and from Romans chapter 12 about how worship is our, it's not just a tiny little moment in our week, it's our entire life of responding to the love of God. This week, um, the title title of my message, the title of the whole series is Inside Out, Real Worship Starts Here, and the title of this week's message is just simply Inside Out Worship, and um, I kind of took, took that title from um, what I see happening here in this conversation in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Today, we're going to try and answer this question among other questions, but the question um, that's kind of central to today is what style of worship does God prefer? There is a correct answer to this. There is a correct answer. What style of worship does God prefer? Now, if I took a poll this morning, which I will not do and I won't ever do because it's not about a democracy, but if I took a poll as to what your personal preference of worship was, some of you would have no idea because this is your first time in church and you're like, you, you wouldn't even have your, a chance to wrap your hands around the question. That's okay. Some of us who have spent some time in church or maybe grew up in a church experience would say, well, I have a personal preference. I think it should be gospel music or I think it should just be hymns or I think it should be a huge band that looks like Hillsong. And some people say, well, I think it should just be shofars and trumpets and tambourines and banners. And you've got all kinds of different ideas about what style of worship. We've become, unfortunately, we've become worship connoisseurs. We've become people that, you know, we, uh, in, in, in church, it grieves my heart because I don't know that the point of worship is to please our hearts and excite our emotions. I don't know that it's, you know, God, let me find what tastes good to me and make that the offering. That didn't work out real well for Cain, and it's not going to work out real well for us either. It's about what does God look for? What is his preference for when we worship God? Does he have a preferred style of one over another? We're going to dive into that today. Jesus gives a very, very clear answer. Um, And um, I'm a little under the weather today, so my filter's not real good. So I'll probably end up offending most of you this morning. So I'm just going to apologize in advance. But, um, But I, you know, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the word says doesn't matter what my personal taste is or what I like or what I don't like. It matters what God likes. And where he and I might not be on the same page, I ought to get on his page. And I ought to be able to get to the point where that is. So we're going to unpack that together this morning. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. This is kind of the midpoint of a long, very uncomfortable, historically improbable conversation between Jesus and somebody he had no business speaking to. Um, but Jesus was never afraid to get into conversations with, with people that other people didn't want to talk to. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter. And that phrase is going to be key this morning. The time's coming when it won't matter. Whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem, 
You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those. Let that phrase sink in. The Father is looking for those. The Father is looking for people who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what's really going on here? Now, for those of us that did not grow up in Bible times, and I'm one of them, and I hope all of you are too, unless you've mastered time travel, and that's a whole other topic. Um, There's a lot that's going on in this chapter of the Bible that we couldn't possibly understand, and I want to dig into it just a little bit this morning. What's really going on here? There's a few things you have to absolutely understand that are happening right here in this passage for us to really get an idea of what's so crazy about this. First of all, a Jewish man is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and that never happened. If the Jewish rabbis taught... That if you were a Jewish man, you are not to have a conversation with a woman in public, period. So first of all, Jewish men didn't talk to women in public, period. But Jewish men definitely didn't talk to Samaritan women at all. Because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It was a racial issue. Because Judaism was not just... Judaism was not just a style of belief, okay? It's not just like Christianity. Judaism was an ethnicity. And the Jews ethnically hated the Samaritans ethnically. This was a racial issue. They hated each other to the very core of their being. So, so deep was their hatred for each other that when the Jews had to go from point A to point B, if it passed through the region of Samaria, they would actually cross over the Jordan River and go a more difficult route simply so they wouldn't have to encounter any Samaritans. They hated them that much they you know and and probably there's some of us at times in our lives that would cross the side of the street to not have to bump elbows with somebody that we didn't want to bump elbows with either but it was a very 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 deep hatred but jesus in the beginning of if you go back to the beginning of of john chapter 4 it's interesting the bible says jesus left judea and went and was headed up to galilee and it says and he had to go through samaria it doesn't say he got to go through or he wanted to go through it says he had to go through there But it's interesting, most Jews would have gone in another direction. Now, Jesus was a Jew, but he said, you know, I'm going to show all of history that I'm nobody's off limits for me. I'll go anywhere and talk to anybody. I'm I'm not going to just walk around the side. I'm going to walk right through the den of the place where they hate me and I hate them because of everything we stand for. So you might be thinking, and I'm asking the question, why did they hate each other so much? Why did these two groups have such animosity? Uh, Well, they disagreed on everything. The Jews and Samaritans disagreed about everything. To start with, the Jews, and history tells us the Jews believed the Samaritans were half-Jews. That's what they called them, the half-Jews. Because if you go back to where the Samaritans got their origin, it started way back with some Jews from Manasseh and Ephraim, who instead of getting married within their own race, got married with some Gentiles, and that became the Samaritans. And the real old-school Jews thought that this was absolutely breaking God's law. God said you weren't supposed to do it. They did it, and now you have the Samaritan people who, if you trace their ancestry back, had all of them had, you know, at some point in their ancestry, had one Jewish parent and one Gentile parent. And so the Jews hated that. They hated being reminded of it. It was not a chapter in their history that they, that, they really wanted to, that they really wanted to relive. The Samaritans and the Jews, what they did have in common is that they both claimed to worship the one true God. And they both even followed part of the Old Testament. But the Samaritans only, only embraced the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they said the rest of the Old Testament had nothing to do with anybody. 
So the Jews, they had the whole Old Testament by this time and time of Jesus. So they couldn't agree on what their Bible was. They couldn't agree on their ethnicity. And most Jews would say that if you drank from the water pitcher or if you touched a Samaritan, you were unclean. And so here is Jesus at this point in the story. John tells us Jesus left Judea and returned. This is back earlier in John chapter four. Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. Verse four, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Well, she knew if he drank from her pitcher, he'd be considered ceremonially unclean. And so she's shocked. Number one, men don't talk to women. Number two, Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. And number three, Jewish men don't drink from Samaritan pitchers. But Jesus said... (laughs) Jesus essentially is saying nobody's unclean or everybody. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is everybody's unclean. It's not just the Samaritans that are unclean. The Jews are unclean. We all have sin in our life and we're all unclean. And he's sitting there having this conversation. You have to understand if he was being a good Jew, this whole chapter in the Bible never even happens. You have to understand this. You have to really capture what's going on here. If. If he was really being everything that the Jewish people expected him to be, he wouldn't have gone there. He wouldn't have stopped there. He wouldn't have talked to her. He wouldn't have asked her for a drink. And he certainly wouldn't have had a conversation. But Jesus just wouldn't avoid anyone. He was willing to go wherever he needed to go. So here's what happens. Because of his great love, Jesus steps into a world of unclean people in order to share new life with them. So after a quick exchange about drinking water, which we'll have to leave to another day, he, you know, he says, I, give me a drink. And, you know, they start talking about living water versus drinking water. There's this really cool conversation, and we'll leave that for another day. But the conversation continues. Jesus flips the script on her. Here's what he says. Go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're sleeping with now. He said, you're telling the truth. How many of us, if we were called on the carpet about a thing we were trying to keep secret. A lot of people believe the reason, because women didn't go to the well at noon. They went earlier in the morning. This woman goes alone. It was a social thing. You know, so a lot of commentators who study this passage say they believe the reason the woman was going at noon is because none of the other women in town wanted anything to do with her because she was so promiscuous. She had been divorced five times and she's living with a man she's not married with. And so she probably just went by herself because she's, you know, she has a reputation around town. So um, he says, you're right. At least you're telling the truth. He sa- and then she says, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Jeherazim where our ancestors worship? You have to see something else. The Samaritan woman is doing all she can to change the subject. Because here's what Jesus says. Let's talk about your personal life. You're living with somebody you shouldn't be living with. You're sleeping around. There's an issue here. And she says, I can tell you're a prophet because I didn't tell you any of this. You just know. Rather than talking about this, let's switch subjects. And you know what she does? She switches to a subject that was at the very center of all the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was their style of worship. Because here's the reality. Both of them claimed to worship God. The Jews said, we worship God. The Samaritans said, we worship God. But here was one of the, another one of the big differences. This, the Jews said, we worship God, and we worship God by bringing sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem. That's our holy place. That's where we go. The Samaritans said, we have our own mountain, Mount Jeherazim. 
where Abraham offered his son Isaac. And this is our holy place. And the Samaritans built their own temple and brought their own offerings, and they said that their way was right. So you've got the Jews who say our way and only our way is right. And you've got the Samaritans who say our way and only our way is right. And it got so bad between them that the Jews at one point actually went and waged war and destroyed the Samaritans' temple. They were so mad that they even had another temple. They tore it down. And so what the Samaritan woman says is, let's just cut to the chase, Jesus. There's a big deal between you and me. There's a divide between your people and my people. And here's what it is. You think your way is right. And we think our way is right. Who's really right? Interesting, isn't it? I'd like to tell you that 2,000 years later, we're not still doing this. And what you have to see is that Jesus didn't shy away from the rabbit trail. He hit it head on. And he answered. So again, the two schools of thought, the Jews believed their way and only their way of worship was correct, and Samaritans believed their way and only their way of worship was correct. You have to understand in ancient, ancient culture, the place of worship was of huge importance. At this time in history, worship wasn't something that happened all over the place all the time. It happened in specific places at specific times. Not only among the people who followed God, but among all the pagans, one rock was holy and another one was ordinary. One building was holy and another one was normal. One field was sacred and another one was just average. One sacrifice was perfect and acceptable and the other one was just a sheep. The thing, the place, the time, the location, the style, all of that was very important when it came to worship. This was huge. So settling the debate between which mountain is the acceptable place for us to go and worship the one true God was a dividing issue between them at the time and Jesus hit it head on. Both the Samaritans and the Jews believe that the location of staff worship was utmost important. But let me just pause before we go any further. I need to pastor us through this for just a moment. Style of worship has always been and continues to be a dividing issue among religious people. It's in every church. It's in every congregation. We're still enraged in the debate over whose style and taste for worship is proper and whose should be destroyed. One wants a drummer, the other wants to burn the drums. One wants hymns, another one wants choruses. One wants a choir, the other wants a soloist. One wants louder music, another wants softer music. One wants to stand, another one wants to kneel. It all boils down to this. One person thinks that their personal taste for worship is the only proper way. The other thinks that their personal taste for worship is the only proper way. And what's the result? They each consider the other group, the Samaritans. And if they really could get their own way, they'd storm the mountain and erase the other's worship style from the face of the map. And sadly, they're both wrong. Can we get past this? Can we get past this silliness that we get into in Christianity where we think that what we want out of worship should be the way that everybody worships? Where we think that our personal preference for style is somehow more important than worshiping the God that doesn't live in a building or in a song but in our hearts? Because quite frankly, if you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind, you'll just worship. Worship just comes out of you. May we never return to these ugly debates because you know who loses? Everybody loses. You know, we're not going to hand out sheets of paper on Sunday morning and ask you to vote for your favorite worship song or worship style or favorite instrument. We're not going to go there. I've been in churches at my dad's pastor that have been torn apart over sillier things than that. It's not something I'm proud about, about Christianity, and not on my watch is that going to happen because my God deserves better than that. 
My God deserves my worship, whether I'm singing with a band or whether I'm singing by myself. My God deserves my worship, whether it's my style of choice on the radio or it isn't. God deserves my worship, whether I know the words or the language or I don't. God deserves my worship, whether it's here on Sunday morning for 30 minutes with music or whether it's sitting in my cubicle at work, honoring God in the way that I work hard for him, whether it's coming through the door. He deserves my worship. And if I really love him, then that stuff doesn't matter. But if I like what worship does for me and I need my own emotions to be excited and pleased and stirred up to get to a certain place, if that's what I need, then I don't love God to the depth that I really claim that I do. And I want you to see that this division over style of worship cost people their lives and caused people to be confused. But the interesting thing is that up until Jesus has this conversation, there was a right and a wrong answer. It's interesting because Jesus essentially answers her question. She says, who's right? He says, well, the Jews are right. We're right. We're worshiping what we know. You've got the first five books of the Bible. You skipped a whole bunch of the Old Testament. You're worshiping what you don't even know. He says, we're worshiping the right way because God said we need to bring this sacrifice at this time to this priest at this altar in this gate in this season. Right? If you read the Old Testament, there's a very specific way to worship. It was all external. Bring this animal at this time in this way and say these words and put your hand here and give it to that priest at this time in this mountain in this city. That's what it meant. He says salvation's come through the Jews. There's a right answer. And then he says, but none of that is going to matter anymore. I'm about to change things. And of all the places in history he chose to change worship forever, it happened at a well with a woman he never should have even talked to simply because she was willing to be honest when he confronted her about the sin in her heart. You want to get deep revelation from God, you've got to get honest about what's in there. He said, I can tell you've told the truth. So of all the people he could have gone to and said, and later on, we can't even talk about the cool thing. Later on, he tells her, she's like, I can't wait for the Messiah come. And the first time he ever says, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't tell anybody else that. Just tells her, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. It's me. (laughs) So here's what we have. We have two very religious groups of people who who worship the same God, the one true God. The Samaritans say the place they worship and the way they worship is the only way that God accepts. The Jews say that their way is the only way that God accepts. So whose way of worship is proper? Here's what Jesus says. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Jesus weighs in and says the following doesn't matter anymore. It used to matter. It mattered when true worship consisted of choosing the right animal, the proper offering at the proper time to the proper priest at the proper place. However, Jesus came to usher in a new kind of worship. Aren't you glad that he came? Do you understand what worship would look like for us if Jesus didn't change this here? Those of you that are attached to your pets would hate worship. You'd hate it. It'd be gory and bloody and difficult. Worship in some ways back then was very gory, but it was very external. It was about going through a certain protocol and procedure, a ceremony, if you will. And what Jesus is saying is that that stuff used to matter, but you know what? Beginning right now, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter whether it's this mountain or that mountain. What he's saying is you don't have to go to this place or that place and do this or that to worship anymore. You just have to really mean it. You just have to really mean it. So it doesn't matter anymore, our style of worship. It doesn't matter any longer our personal taste for music, posture, architecture, or the like. God doesn't care one whit whether we worship on this mountain or that one, whether we worship with songs or in silence, with drums or with pianos, in churches with steeples or office buildings with vending machines. All he cares about is do you really, really love him? 
Do you really love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength? Do you truly and sincerely adore him? Do you genuinely want to be as close to him as you possibly can be? And if so, you're already worshiping him. So here's the big idea. The big idea is that Jesus did something historically radical in this conversation with a Samaritan woman. He completely changed the definition of true worship. No longer was worship to be based on external appearances, outward actions, geographic locations, and personal preferences of the worshiper. Instead, Jesus instituted a much purer, simpler, internal worship that becomes natural to every person who really loves God the Father. May we never return to the days of looking for God in songs and styles and buildings. Instead, may we always worship the God who lives in our hearts. Jesus, this was historic. This was historic. What he's saying is that through his death on the cross, he wants everybody everywhere now to have access to worshiping God in the way that they feel most naturally bubbles up from out of their spirit into their heart and out of their mouths and into their lives. He no longer was accepting worship that was just going through the motions. He was no longer accepting of worship like what Abel or what Cain tried to bring. You know, you've got you've got Cain and Abel way back in Genesis. We've got this first worship service. You know, Abel brings Abel brings a sacrifice of a of a, of a killed animal, which is the sacrifice that God gave to Adam and Eve when he slayed an animal and put clothes on them. He brings what God asked for, and the Bible says. He offered it in faith. Cain doesn't bring the gory, bloody animal. He brings something that he grew himself that he preferred, that tasted good to him, that he thinks if it tastes good to me, it tastes good to God. So he brings whatever fruits of the vine and veggies and fruits and makes a nice and it's beautiful looking, much nicer than the bloody, gory, whatever it was that the other guy brought. And he brings it, doesn't offer it in faith and God rejects it. And it makes and here's what happens when, when we don't get what we want in worship. We usually get angry. I went the whole way back to Cain. That's how you figure out if you're more like Cain or Abel. When you're not getting what you want out of church and worship, do you get mad at somebody else? you mad at the pastor, mad at the team, and start getting all upset and bent out of shape? That was Cain. That was Cain. He, he got all upset, bent out of shape, and went and killed his brother and lived the rest of the life with that kind of marking his, his life. And the difference between them is Abel was worshiping God for, the, for, for who he was. And Cain was worshiping God for what he was hoping God would do for him in accepting his offering. He was trying to get something out of God and Abel was just trying to give to God. Big difference in our heart. So what does this tell us? Let me just give you three things real briefly and then we'll close. What does this really mean? Number one, God seeks people who worship, not just acts of worship. God seeks people who worship, not just acts of worship. Or said another way, God seeks true worshipers, not just worship. And where do you pull that from, Pastor? And why is that important? John 4, 23 says, it's interesting. You've got to catch this. God is looking for those who will worship him that way. It does not say God is looking for worship. It says God is looking for those who will worship him that way. And it's interesting. Some of my friends who don't believe in following God the way that I do have issues with a God who demands worship. They find that very self-centered. They find it very arrogant. Why would God just say, I want your worship, I want your worship, I want your worship? Well, look very carefully here. It's not so much that God wants our worship, but here's the reality. God created every single human being to be a worshiper. You You decide what you worship. It's natural for every human being everywhere in the face of the earth to worship something. You worship yourself, you worship pleasure, you worship happiness, you worship money, you worship God, you worship a lot. You worship whatever you want to choose to worship. He created you to worship. You just pick the object of your worship. And here's what he says. I'm not looking for your worship independent of you. He says, I'm looking for people who will worship me that way. 
God's always been looking for you, not for what he can get out of you. He's been looking for you. And you have to understand this. That's what he's saying to the Samaritan woman. He's not looking for you to hike up this mountain and kill something or hike up that mountain and offer something. He's looking for you. Because he knows if he gets your heart, he gets your worship too. Because whoever you give your heart to, your worship comes along with it. So if you can find, so if you find nothing in your heart to give to God in worship and it's a struggle, you haven't given him your heart. Let me say that again. If you find it a struggle to give God sincere, authentic worship with your life, it's an indication you haven't fully surrendered your heart to him. Because what happens automatically is when you fall madly in love with Jesus, worship is the result. You don't have to be wound up, hooped up, hollered up. You don't have to have the right song going on. You can be in your car in complete silence driving down the road and find gratitude and thankfulness for God. He's looking for those who will worship him in that way. Why? Because God knows if he wins your heart, he gets your worship as well. When you give your heart to Jesus, every location becomes as suitable a place as another for worship. When you give your heart to Jesus, the morning is holy, the noontime is holy, the evening is holy, the entire day can become an uninterrupted time of devotion and worship between you and God. When you give your heart fully to Jesus, our morning shower becomes like a baptism and your lunch becomes like your communion. It doesn't matter. You don't have to wait once a month. When you are really madly in love with Jesus... Your entire life becomes an uninterrupted act of worship between you and the God that you love. The closer we get back to the nakedness of worship, the nearer we get to its truth and to its purity. But because man's fallen and when we fell, we started needing, we needed clothing to cover up our nakedness. We do the same thing with our worship sometimes too. We start covering it up with all kinds of other clothing and dressing and think it needs this and that and the other thing. It really doesn't. All God's looking for is the simple purity out of your heart that says, I love you. And that's every bit as much as worship as you singing a marvelous anthem with the best voice possible. He's looking for what's inside of our heart. Look back at verse 23 one more time. He says, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. So let me ask you, what kind of worshiper is God looking for? There's one word. What kind of worshiper is he looking for? True. That's all he's looking for. He's looking for a true worshiper. Now, if that's interesting that he uses that word, because now Jesus in, says that there's a difference. There's a distinction between a true worshiper. And if you have a true worshiper, by contrast, you must also have a false worshiper or an untrue worshiper. Now, most of us, if I asked you what a false worshiper is, you'd say someone who worships a God other than God. That's not what Jesus is saying. A false worshiper is someone who's worshiping on the outside, but not the inside. He says, I'm looking for true worshipers whose worship is pure, spiritual, internal, authentic, not just those who are going through the motions. In other words, what this says is that God's able to discern now between a worshiper and a worshiper. Two people are standing, both of them hands in the air, both singing the same song, both dressed the same way. And God's able to say this one is truly worshiping and this one isn't. Now, interesting, God doesn't ask me or you or the worship leader or anybody else to judge the worship. That's not for us to tell because I can't see your heart. But God says, I'm able to look past your posture, past your songs, past your folded arms, past whatever it is that's going on externally and see your heart. And it's the heart that he's looking at. And one heart is truly involved in worship and the other isn't. The one standing up front singing a million songs, drawing attention to themselves, cartwheeling about might not be worshiping. But the one in the back reverently bowing their head in silence, not singing along, but having communion with God. That's true worship. That's true worship. It's interesting. He's able to look at the worshiper and say, here's a true worshiper. 
And here's an untrue worshiper. Not because of how we're singing or where we're standing or what we're doing or what we're wearing or what we like or we don't like, but because of what's in our heart. What's in our heart? How do you really feel deep down in there? And the beautiful thing is that that lowers the bar of worship for all of us. You don't have to get to church or know the song. You don't have to have a great voice or play an instrument. You just have to really, really love him and mean it. That's it. And if that's it, the result is a life of worship. I, I was reminded of this. You know, I don't mean this to embarrass him, but I had a good, I had a good teaching moment. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a worship service in another church, and I was sitting next to Chris Corelli, and um, there was a song that came up on worship, and I didn't know the song. And I just leaned over to him like a couple bars in. I was like, man, this is a good song. I was like, do, do you know this song? And he looks at me, and he, he, just, he just said very gently, he just said, Pastor, honestly, it doesn't matter if I know the song or not. I'm worshiping the king. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and I'm repenting, you know. I'm like, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, but I'm like, that's what God's looking for. He doesn't, he's like, I don't know. It's like, it doesn't matter if I know the song or not. I'm worshiping the king. It's not about the song. It's about the person we're singing about. That's what it was about for him. And he, it didn't affect his worship at all. I'm the one who's like, hmm, this is a good song. He's like, you're thinking about a song. I'm thinking about the king. That's true worship. That's the heart that God seeks. It's not my song. It's not whether I know the lyrics or not. No, it helps. But don't get me wrong. It helps. I can, it's easier for me to engage in worship if I do kind of know the song or I know the lyrics. Or, I mean, those, it's not a bad thing for some familiarity there. There's some songs in my life that meant something to me 20 years ago that the moment that I hear it, it's, it's going to bring that, That's okay. The problem is when I make those things the object of the worship. And when I say I can't have worship if you don't play the song this way or that way or another way. I grew up on most of the songs I grew up on, I, you don't hear anymore. And that's okay. I don't need those songs for me to worship my God. Now, they're special songs. They're great songs. There's nothing wrong with them. 20 years from now, they're going to have the same argument. The stuff you think is cutting edge right now and ruining church worship music 20 years from now is going to be old school. Just how it is. Just how it is. So you can either fight that battle for the next rest of your life or you can just love Jesus simply and purely and let him accept him. I'd rather do that. That's the course of least resistance for me. So number two, God seeks those whose worship is spiritual. He seeks those whose worship is spiritual. Here's what it says in John 4, 24. God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit. So let me ask you a question. According to this, it's not a trick question. Where does true worship come from? Where does it originate then? Inside out, right? It originates in our spirit. Now, we could go back a couple weeks ago. Some of you didn't hear this teaching. I won't bring the flip chart out. But the way that God made us is he, he gave us a body and a soul and a spirit. My body is just my hands, my feet, the part of me that you see. You know, it's rough on your eyes. I recognize that. It's okay. But worship doesn't come from my hand or my foot. It does what my brain tells it to do. My hand being in the air or not in the air does not make worship or not worship. It's just a hand or foot. Worship does not come from my body. So where does it come from? Well, some people say it comes from your soul. Well, my soul is a part of me that you, you can't really. That's my thoughts, my imagination, my actions, my feelings. And that, at first blush, that might seem right. And a lot of us get that far in our worship. But my mind's not only capable, my mind is capable of thinking about spiritual things and not meaning a word of it when it comes out of my mouth. My mind is capable of singing through a song and repeating things with my mouth that I'm not even thinking about. I could be thinking about work or what I'm going to eat this afternoon or, you know, the dynamic signing of Darren Sproles that the Eagles had this year. I could be thinking about a whole bunch of different things. And all the while, my mouth and my soul is reading through things. You could be sitting in church this morning. You've sent 10 emails already. You know, you're on Facebook. You could be doing a million and one different things. And your mind might be, you know, here. But 
your, your heart's not in it. You know where true worship comes from? It comes from our spirit. Because when I get saved, it's not like Jesus comes in my heart. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, when you accept Jesus, it says your spirit is fused together with God's spirit. And that's where all of everything in heaven that can be mine resides. And he says true worshipers must worship God out of our spirit from the inside out. So it's not come in, sing a song and try and get myself into it. It's coming with a song already bubbling up from my spirit from the inside but you watch so many people try and turn worship into an outside in experience like this has to be just perfect that just be perfect and we just hit this song just right or this key change here or that key change there all of a sudden that's not the worship god's looking for i'm not minimizing music i love music we want music to be excellent and good we realize if we're singing off key and not getting the words right and they're playing 19 different instruments up front that aren't synced together and it's a disaster it's going to be real hard for us to worship but the worship that he's looking for should not depend on what a worship team can do for you 17 minutes a week. If we're worshiping out of our spirit, let me tell you something. You have nonstop stamina for worship because your spirit never gets tired of worshiping. Your spirit never gets tired of praying. That's why we're supposed to live out of our spirit, not out of our body. Our bodies break down and get tired after a while. But our spirit has this nonstop, never-ending reserve of passion and energy for God and for worship and for loving him. He says it should be spiritual. So why is spiritual worship so rare? Why is it so rare? Well, because it's more difficult to worship in spirit than in form. It's tougher to do. To recite a handful of hymns or quote a dozen Lord's prayers is so easy, I could doze off while I'm doing it. To repeat a short prayer in the morning and at lunch and in the evening is a very small matter and I could be thinking about work or daydreaming the whole time. To go to church once or twice a week and faithfully give my finances to God is a routine task that as you said this morning, I can set it up and auto-draft it and not even think about it, although I don't think we should give without thinking about it. I think we should think about it. I think we should think about it when we give. I give online and I have it done regularly, but I think about it. I don't want, I want it. It's a conscious act of worship I'm doing intentionally to give to God, not because I have to. I give willingly. What is this whole business of we give sacrificial? You know what it means to give sacrificial? It means you're killing something you don't really want to kill and bring. I give willingly. It's not a sacrifice. I do it willingly. You know, we'll talk about that next week. That's one of the most misinterpreted scriptures in all the Bible. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. That's not, it doesn't mean that you worship God when you don't feel like it and make it a sacrifice. That's not what it means at all. It means when you come to God, you come intending to bring him something. And in the Bible times, it was a sacrifice. It was not like you just came, well, I'm tired today and I don't feel like it, but I'm going to give God my sacrifice of praise. What is that? I don't really feel like it, but I guess he's good anyway. And I'm just, you know, he can thank you, Jesus, you know, for being so wonderful. And how are you doing, brother? I'm just hanging on, you know. I made it, bless the Lord. Well, give me some of that. That's what I want for my life. That's the missing element and more of that. It's the medicine. I'm sorry. What's far more difficult is to bring our heart down to humble repentance and quiet our soul to holy reflection. The last thing most people really want to do is to think, to tremble in humility before God, to confess our sin to him, to believe him, to love him. And that's true worship. Why is that so rare? Because to really offer God spiritual worship, we'd have to part with sin. If you really want to worship God from your spirit, you've got to part with your sins. And that's kind of unpopular. We would like to be able to worship God and get all the good out of worship and all the goosebumps we can without having to really deal with our sin, but that's not the way that it works. That's an outside-in view 
of, of worship. And just like with this woman, he didn't talk to her about worship till he talked to her about her heart. Before he got into all the X's and Y's and Z's about which mountain was right, he said, you're not living right. There's sin in your life. There's no effect on a man's conscience to eat a communion wafer, recite the words of amazing grace, or attend a small group Bible study every night of the week. You can do all these things and still worship pleasure and money. But to become a really spiritual worshiper, we have to give up our sins, overcome our pride, overcome our lust, and lay our soul bare before Almighty God. I don't know how to make this any more plain this morning. It's not the kind of songs we sing or the style of music we prefer. It's not the posture we assume in worship or the clothes we wear to church or the congregation we associate with that makes my worship acceptable to God. True worship lies in our heart paying reverence to him, our soul obeying him, and our inner person becoming more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit on side of us. That's spiritual worship. Friends, you won't go anywhere in worship. All you're doing is just repeating words that mean nothing to God if your heart says you don't love him. Because if you love him, you're not going to live in sin. If you love him, you're not going to be living a double life of trying to worship and please God with a segment of your life and the other life doing what seems best and pleasurable to you. God doesn't want just your worship. He wants your heart. And you can't worship him in spirit and truth if you're living a lie to him. And this is why he makes that invitation. If you just come to him and say, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. You just saying, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. That's an act of worship. It's pure, it's sincere, and he receives it, and he accepts it. He forgives you, and he unburdens you from that and makes you clean. Finally, number three, God seeks those whose worship is true. Those who worship him must worship in truth. Not just spirit, but in truth. So what does this mean? What's Jesus trying to communicate when he says that those who worship God must worship him in truth? I'll tell you what it means. It's actually simple, but it's so simple it's utterly profound. What this means is that if we want to worship God, here it is. You have to really love him. That's it. What does it mean to worship him in truth? If you want to worship God, you want him to accept you, you have to really mean it. You have to be sincere. You have to be authentic. That's it. You can't say it and feel otherwise. That's not worship. You can't just go through motions. He just wants it to be not only from your spirit, but he wants it to be genuine. We must be completely authentic and sincere. It's not enough to recite words we don't mean or copy forms we don't understand. We can say, let's all sing the song and put our hands in the air. That's not worship unless you mean it. I, I mean, I've grown up with pastors in my life who said, you know, you really need to go deeper in your worship, young man. I need to see, you know, they'd evaluate worship service. The congregation wasn't worshiping today. Well, why do you mean that, pastor? Well, the hands weren't up in the air. Well, go to a baseball game. They all put their hands in the air. That's not worship. Watch what happens on your block when the Ravens score a touchdown in the playoffs. All that is is form. All that is is excitement. All that is is... But yet sometimes putting my hands in the air is absolutely a sincere, genuine act of worship. It's not the form. It's the heart. It's do I really, really mean it? Because here's a beautiful thing, friend. You don't have to like our style of worship. You don't have to like the song selection. You don't have to like me or anything else. But if you love Jesus, then you can come here and worship anytime you want. You'll be able to worship him. You'll be able to get past some of those things. If you really, really, really love him, those things become less and less and less important. So whatever kind of worship it is that the divine ruler of the universe looks for, he ought to be able to receive it. And it is the height of offense for me to say to him, not this kind of worship, but this kind. That's what I prefer to offer you. So what's the practical drift of this message? Here's the conclusion. There's two things I want to leave with you. These are not in your notes. Just two things um, I just want to leave with you as a closing thought as our worship team comes. Let's guard ourselves against anything that looks like a return to rituals and ceremonialism of the past. 
Let's just make a, let's just make a, a, a clear understanding. We're going to be careful about anything that moves worship back to the way that it was before Jesus changed everything. Let's be very careful about moving our worship back to relying on this place or that place or this mountain or that mountain or this style or that style. Let's press in towards simple spiritual worship that God accepts. Let's allow ourselves the freedom to worship God aloud and in silence. In old hymns and in new songs, in churches and in homes, in the city and in the country, with windows open or in closed cubicles, every moment where love and adoration for God can be felt, let's offer him our sincere and simple worship. And let's not ever go back to the way that it was before. Secondly, let's make it a matter of heart searching to discover if we have been in the habit of worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. I want you to search your own heart and say, God, have I been worshiping you in spirit and truth or have I let some external things creep in? Have I really been worshiping you out of the love of my heart or have I been seeking you in a style or a preference or a segment of my week? When the preaching isn't as sweet in your ears one week as another, do you feel as if Sunday has lost its enjoyment for you? It shouldn't because God's still here and if the main object of your worship is God, then you should be able to worship just as well whether it's Pastor A or Pastor B in the pulpit. When you stand to sing, do your thoughts accompany your voice? Although you might have a sweet singing voice, God doesn't hear your voice, but your heart. And if your heart hasn't sung, you haven't sung at all. When we rise to pray, do you pray along? Even if the prayers that we're offering don't apply to your needs specifically, it shouldn't matter because it's not really prayer to you unless you've joined in it. These are all different things that we do or don't do that demonstrate whether we're really going after him in spirit and truth or if we're just going through the motions of what looks like worship. If you don't put your heart into worship, you'd be better off at home than here. Let me be clear. Now, if you're here, you're putting yourself in a good position for something to happen. But when it comes to your worship, if you're not putting your heart into it, you can worship as much asleep at home as you can sitting here just going through the motions. You're not adding anything to, to what's happening. You're just happening to be here. If you've not with your whole hearts loved and worshipped God, then here's what we do. We repent over it. We pray the Holy Spirit makes us spiritual. We go to the cross of Jesus and we trust in him. Then and not until then will you be capable of adoring the most high God in the style in which he can accept your worship. That's what I'm asking God to impress on my heart and our heart today, that we will really worship him. We'll become worshipers and worship him in spirit and in truth, that it comes from our spirit, not from a posture, not from a song, but that the songs that we sing, we can really mean. And even if you don't know the words, I have been in places in the world where I didn't have a clue what they were singing and the music was lousy. I remember being in a cinder block building in the middle of El Salvador somewhere. We had to walk like eight hours on foot just to get to this little village and they had a church service that night and they cranked up the band, which was like four tambourines and, a, and, and something, some other instrument I'd never seen had a bunch of strings and stuff on and it was not a pretty sound. That whole make a joyful noise verse, that was, that was this church. But I have to tell you about three seconds. I didn't know a single song they were singing. I didn't, didn't sound even like music. But I want to tell you, the 70 or the 80 people there, every single person lifted their voice and they closed their eyes, tears streaming down their face. I don't know what they were saying, but I know what was in their heart. They loved Jesus with every fiber of their being. And I've been in places with bands that stretch across the stage without a drop of God's presence there. What makes one worship and the other one not? I don't know. God's the judge. One group of people understood who they were worshiping, not just that they were playing music.
there was something deep inside of their heart. And here's what I want to tell you. If inside your heart there's a deep love for Jesus, then this doesn't need to stress you out. This should be a relief to you. Because it's that love for Jesus that bubbles up constantly inside of you, out of your spirit, and it starts filling your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings. And it starts to escape out in the way that you live and you act and you work and you interact with people you like and you don't like. All those things become an act of worship to God that he accepts and that he loves. And I do not want to pastor a church where we make form our worship. Where we have to reinvent ourselves every six months by what's hot or what's new or what's this or what's that. You know, I I love to worship, but I don't ever want it to become the object of my worship. I only want one object of my worship, and that's because no song died for me. No song changed my life. I want to be able to feel like I have the freedom to worship Jesus here among you, whether I know the song or I don't. And when I get in my car and go home, I want that concert to continue. Because the beautiful thing is when you worship from your spirit, the moment you leave this body, your worship continues. Because my spirit's what goes with me. And when this body expires and it's tired and it eventually something's going to take me out if God doesn't, bring, doesn't come back to earth, my spirit that's been worshiping all these years will just go from glory to glory. And that worship inside of me, I'll get a new body and a new soul, but my spirit of worship will be right there with me. That's what he wants. He wants you. Let's pray. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, now's your opportunity. You can start a relationship with Jesus right here. You might be that person like the Samaritan woman that Jesus went out of his way to talk to. Somebody that maybe you wouldn't have met had he not met. So you made a decision to be here this morning. Not by coincidence. God knew you'd be here. And he knows and you know that there's a distance between you. Do you want a relationship with Jesus? He wants one with you. If you do. You come to him on his conditions. And here's what those conditions are. You have to believe he exists. You have to accept the sin in your life. And you have to be willing to ask him to forgive you from it and release it and leave it all behind. Leave your old way of living behind and follow him. That's the decision that I made in my life. That's a decision many of the people in this room have made with their lives. And we're doing the very best that we can. We are not perfect. But we're doing the very best that we can to know God, to echo Jesus, and to help people. That's what we're trying to do. So if you're here this morning, you know you need to make things right with Jesus. Here's all you have to do. You can just pray a prayer right in your seat from a sincere and authentic heart that says the following, Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I have lived in a way that's been pleasing me. I've been worshiping my own things. But today I leave those things behind. I accept responsibility for every decision I've made in my life up to this point. I ask you to forgive me for all the things that I've done wrong. And I receive salvation. I receive the new life that you want to give to me. I receive forgiveness. So I'm not going to walk out of here with my head down and feel guilty anymore. I receive that grace and mercy that breaks those things off of me today. And I want to now become a new creature, a new person in you today. And friend, if you're praying that prayer right now, you are, I guarantee you're feeling something. You are feeling something new on the very inside of you that's deeper than your body, deeper than your soul. It's all the way deep down in your spirit. That's the message. Jesus has not stopped going across the river to talk to people that nobody else wants to talk to or connecting with people that feel like they were forgotten about. He did it in John chapter 4. He's doing it right here this morning. If all of this morning was for you, then all of heaven's throwing a party right now because you made that decision to accept him. My challenge for the rest of us is this. Will you just examine your heart for a moment and just ask God, just in honesty, God, Am I worshiping you in spirit and in truth? Is my worship something that you can accept from me? Or is there something in my heart that needs to change? Is there sin in my life that needs to be put aside? Have I been looking for you in a style or in a 
to recapture something from the past or pick up something new? Have I elevated other things and put them in your place that only worship belongs in? And then just come back to that place and just say, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. I love you. All those things are just simple, pure forms of worship. In fact, all over this place right now, as we're, as we're closing, as the team's just playing lightning in the background, why don't you... Why don't you just worship God in the way that feels natural to you right where you're at right now? We don't need to have a song in this moment. You can do it in silence or using your voice. Why don't you just sincerely express to him what you really believe about him? And he will accept it right where you're at. Magnify your name, Jesus. Thank you for second chances. And I thank you for always listening and hearing. I believe you. I believe you exist. I don't think you're just a figment of our imagination or something in history. I actually believe you. I believe you're hearing this right now. I believe you're present in this cafeteria. I believe you're walking among us right now. We can sense your presence and the aroma of who you are near us. You're a lovely, lovely Savior. Why don't you stand with me all over the cafeteria? We're going to close with just a song of worship appropriately. A song called Inside Out, which talks about this a little bit. If you'd like someone to pray with you about anything, just hold steady for a sec. We'll dismiss in about five minutes. But um, if you'd like someone to pray with you about anything at all, we have prayer team members that will be standing on my right or my left. These are people that I know personally. They're, they're, they're leaders and volunteers in this church. You can trust them. They pray with people every week. If you've got anything going on in your life that you just like to share with another human being and have them listen to you for a second and pray with you, we're happy to do that. So at any point, as we're closing with this last song, you can slip over here to my right. Bonnie's over here. Janice is over here on my left. Mark's coming around on this side. Um, Brian's over here. You're welcome to slip out of your seat and come and just ask them to pray with you. But we're going to close with the song of worship. Just find a place in your heart where you can offer this up to God this morning. And then Pastor Stewart will come and close us in just a moment.